Preachers are a very peculiar breed. They can talk endlessly. Some of them can actually talk endlessly about one word. And whilst I am not quite in that league, I am going to talk about one word. And the word, of course, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is an Old Testament word. It's a name. It means literally God with us. When Joseph was visited by an angel and told that Mary was with child, Joseph was told that the baby's name was Emmanuel. He was also told that his his other name would be Jesus. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means Savior from our sin. If, If we really grasp hold of this idea that the God who transcends all things actually came into our world to be with us, the question that would come to mind would be, why? Why would he come to be with us? And of course, one of the answers we looked at was that he came for the express purpose to save us from our sin. We're going to look into John's gospel, actually the part that is called the prologue. It's the opening verses of, of the first chapter of John's gospel. It's one of the most profound statements in literature anywhere of any kind. And it, it has to do with the birth of Jesus. And it says that Jesus came in order that he might make God known to us. That's that's what I want to talk to you about. Emmanuel, God is with us in order that he might make himself known to us. God wants to be known. He wants to be enjoyed. He wants to have an intimacy of relationship with the creatures that he has made. But but there's a problem. And the, the problem is that a lot of human beings want to try and figure out God for themselves. Their approach is what we call speculation. There's there's no question about it that just about everybody is interested in God in one form or another. I mean, there's some people who are atheists and they say there is no God. Well, they've arrived at that conclusion because they're interested in God in the first place, to find out if there was one. There are agnostics who say, I don't know if there's a God. If there is a God, he's not knowable. Well, clearly they've given some thought to it. And they're they're the people on one extreme of the continuum and then all the way across the continuum, the people with varying varying degrees of interest in God. Everybody's interested in God. And uh, the, the way that human beings go about developing this interest is that they tend to get into speculation. In other words, they try to figure out what God's like. They sit down here and they deal with this vast concept that is totally mind-boggling, and they they form their own opinions of what God is like. Now, the problem with speculation is is that it it can be notoriously inaccurate. (laughs) You could speculate and be dead wrong. People speculate on the stock market. You can be dead wrong. People speculate in, in all kinds of areas, and that there's really nothing to go on. Fortunately, there's another approach as far as God is concerned. And that is, instead of thinking of speculation being me from here trying to figure out God, it is the reverse. It is God taking the initiative in revelation. Not speculation, revelation. And God determining to reveal himself to us. Now, that's basically the thrust of the fourth gospel. That God in Christ revealed himself to us and made himself known. Now, Moses, at one stage in his career, was having a discussion with God about what he'd been asked to do. And Moses was pretty straightforward about it. He said, God, if you don't come with me, I'm not going. I'm just not flat not going. 
And he said, what I'd really like would be a revelation of yourself. I'd really like to know what you're like. And God said, well, you can't have the kind of revelation you want because no one can see God and live. In other words, there is something so awesome and so grand and so majestic and so holy and so inherently, intrinsically righteous about God that human beings cannot bear the sight. It's not too difficult for us to understand that if, if there's an eclipse of the sun and we want to look at it and we want our kids to see it, we say, do not look straight at the sun. It'll burn your eyeballs. So we have to look obliquely at it. In the same way, God wants to reveal himself to us. He doesn't want us wallowing in speculation. He wants us on the solid rock of revelation. But he fully recognizes that if he simply drew aside the drapes and revealed himself in all his glory, human beings couldn't stand the sight. So, as the hymn puts it, God reveals himself, quote, veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh. In other words, he comes in the form of Jesus, bearing humanity. And in humanity, his glory is veiled. So we're not burned up at the sight and we have a revelation of God that we can handle. There's another way of looking at it. There's a rather technical word used in John's gospel, which says that when Jesus came down here, he explained God to us. The technical word is he exegeted him to us. And that's what preachers are supposed to do. They're supposed to exegete the scriptures, explain them, make them understandable. Jesus came and, if you like, exegeted the invisible God to us. I have the privilege of preaching all over the world, and I go to lots of places where the people don't speak English. And I always tell them, you must learn English. You, you really must learn English for one very good reason. English is the language they will speak in heaven. And they're surprised to hear that. And they say, why is English the language that they will speak in heaven? I said, because God knows you can't get Americans to learn another language. So I have to speak through an interpreter. And as I, as I speak through the interpreter, for instance, I was in Japan not long ago and I had an interpreter who just came up just above my waist. And I would say a sentence and then he would interpret that sentence and it would go on as long as a paragraph. And I have a sneaking suspicion he was preaching his own sermon, but I don't know. <laughs> but the point was that my English had to be translated into language that was knowable to them. And Jesus is God with us to interpret, to reveal God to us in language that we can understand. That's the point. Now, let me just read a few verses from John's Gospel, chapter 1, because I hope that if you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, you'll spend some time in it over this Christmas period. It is rich in the extreme. Listen to what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 10. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God the only Son, who is at the Father's side, and he has made him known. He has made him known. All right? Now let me try and exegete this passage. Just explain it in language that we can all understand, which is extremely difficult because this deals with some of the greatest mysteries known to man. Notice, first of all, that this passage of Scripture is about someone called the Word. Now, we need to drag in the Greeks and Hebrews here, and I know that's a bit of a problem for some folks because they can't understand why preachers always drag in ancient Greeks and Hebrews. The reason, of course, is that the Bible was written in the days of the ancient Greeks and the Hebrews in their language by people who thought in their thought patterns. So if we're to understand what it has to say to us today, we need to understand what it was saying to them then, okay? Now, the Greeks, when they talked about a word, had two ideas about it. Number one, they had unspoken words or spoken words. That's no different from us. An unspoken word was therefore an idea or a thought or a reason in their head, but they never expressed it. But a spoken word was a thought or a reason that is expressed. So the word can mean either a thought or a reason or an expression of the thought or a reason. Now let me give you an example of an unspoken word. I preached one day, I did my best, I thought it was a halfway decent sermon And at the end of it, a lady came up to me, and clearly she was not impressed. How did I gather that she was not impressed? She said to me, when are you going to say something relevant? When are you going to say something relevant? And a a, a thought came into my mind. (laughs) Would you like to know what that thought was? The thought was, right now, lady... Right now, I'm going to say something extremely relevant. But you'll be thrilled to know I never expressed that thought. It was a thought that was an unspoken word. Now then, the word is a title that is clearly given to the Lord Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says, and we gazed upon his glory. And then he writes the whole of his gospel about Jesus. So word is a title given to Jesus. What's the point of it? The point of it is this that Jesus is described as being the thought or the reason behind all things. Now, that's mind-boggling. The thought or the reason behind all things. But then a step further. And in addition to being the thought and reason behind all things, he has become the unique expression of these hidden thoughts and reason behind all things. Now, the mysteries of the universe keep people on the tiptoe of anticipation. Oh, they're so excited about sending probes to Mars. They're so thrilled when they discover what they think is ice on the south pole of the moon. They get so excited when they think in terms of all the light years and the light coming and billions of light years and all kinds of mind-boggling, stupendous things. And they're trying to figure out if there's life on another part of the planet, etc., etc., and on other planets. A friend of mine was challenged by a, a reporter the other day, and he said, now it is, it is probably pretty certain that there is life on other planets. What will that do to your Christianity? My friend said, nothing. Won't do anything to my Christianity. He said, what if they find life on other planets? He said, well, there'll be two possibilities. If they find life on other planets, they will be living as God their creator intended them to do, and we will learn from them. If they aren't, we'll evangelize them. No problem. 
Seemed to me a superb answer to the question. But there's such interest. There's such interest in the mysteries behind our universe. And this is what he says. The Word is the reason behind all things. And he has come to express reason to us. So we don't need to get into speculation. We need to look into all kinds of ways of discovering, in the context of revelation, the reason behind all things. Now, he goes on to say this about the identity of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the the literal tense is, in the beginning, the Word had already been in a state of continuous existence. Now, we have a problem with that immediately because we can't figure out what in the beginning was. What, What was in the beginning? Nobody can imagine what the beginning was. Now, there are all kinds of theories, and I'm not really not concerned about all the different theories. There's some people who decided that the, the beginning of the universe was then, and others, others said, oh, no, no, it wasn't then, it was then. As far as I'm concerned, whenever it was, and I don't know when it was, the word, the reason behind all things, had already been in a state of continuous existence. So why argue about the beginning? Why not rejoice in the fact that whatever it was, whatever it was, he had already been in a state of continuous existence. There was a a professor in England, Professor Sir Bernard Lovell, an eminent scientist. He said, I'm an agnostic. I I wish I was a believer like some of my friends and colleagues, but I'm not. But he said, I must say this. On the basis of purely scientific observation, we will never know what happened at time equals zero. We'll never know what happened at time equals zero. But he did say this, because we do not know and will not ever know on the basis of scientific observation what happened to time equals zero, any theory of the beginning, whether it be physical, metaphysical, or theological, has at least equal validity. And that's from an agnostic. So don't get into arguments about the beginning. Just get hold of this vast statement that there's a reason behind it all. And this reason behind it all, when the beginning happened, had already been in a state of continuous existence. Now, the second thing about the identity of the word is this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the expression with God has the sense of being face to face with God. In intimacy of relationship with God. In the beginning, the word had already been the reason behind all things in an intimacy of relationship with God in such a way that there was no one who could know God like the Word knows God. And then the third statement is, not surprisingly, and the Word was God himself. So in the beginning, the Word had already been in a state of continuous existence and relationship with the Father because he was innately God himself. Now that's the introduction to John's Gospel. Now he gets on to talk not about the identity of the Word, but the activity of the Word. And the activity of the Word, first of all, is this. All things were created by Him, and there's not anything created that was not created by Him. Positively stated, negatively stated. That just about covers the basis. Every single thing that was created was created by the sheer genius of the Word who was eternally present with the Father in the beginning and was God himself. The Bible talks about God the Father creating. The Bible also talks about the, the, the Lord Jesus or the Word of God being involved in creation and it talks about the Spirit of God being operative at the same time. Creation is a Trinitarian activity. But it doesn't just say that the Word is the creator of all things. It says, in him was life. Now, life is a vast mystery. 
It is, it, it is a total mystery. All the things that we know about life still can't explain basically what it is. We can, we can delve into certain characteristics of life, and as we delve into certain characteristics of life, we will, we will identify these characteristics and try to explain life by it. But you can't do it. It's like trying to explain music. I, I don't know if you're a fan of Mozart. I happen to be a fan of Mozart. And when I'm studying, I like to play Mozart. They say if you listen to Mozart while you study, it increases your intelligence. And I need that desperately. So I play all the Mozart I can get. Now, if you listen to Mozart, a violin concerto or something like that, you may say, well, that is, that is just somebody scraping uh, horse hair across cat gut. That's all it is. And, and all that is happening is that sound waves are being produced by horsehair scraped across cat gut. Well, does that sound like a Mozart to you? Is that going to inspire anybody? I say, oh, now I'm going to get inspired by listening to some sound waves created by horsehair and cat gut. That doesn't, that doesn't make it. You see, you can, it's true. There's horsehair and it's true there's cat gut and it's true there's sound waves. It doesn't explain music. It doesn't explain what it can do to your soul, do to your heart. In the same way, we can explain all kinds of constituent aspects of life, but we can't explain life. But what the scripture says is this, that the word, eternally present with the Father in the beginning, God himself, in the most intimate of relationship, is the creator of all things and the source of all life. Not just temporal life and not just physical life, but spiritual life and eternal life. Now we're, we're mysteries, folks. We're over our heads. We're in faith areas now. You see, the thing that puzzles me is that, that, that we so trivialize Christmas. And we're, we're missing the point that often we get all gooey-eyed about a little baby in a crash and we get all, you know, all excited about the fact that there was no room at the inn and we, we, we you know, we're, we're kind of moved by the fact that the oxen were mooing and the, and the donkeys were braying, whatever it was, while the baby was born. That's all well and good, but we're talking about the word, folks. We're talking about the word becoming flesh. We're talking about the creator of all things, the one who is the source of all life, and the one in whom is light. Now, light's another mystery. Light travels, I believe, at 186,000 miles a second. That's fast, folks. It's not infinite, but it's fast. It's measurable. And things that travel usually either travel in waves or in particles, so they tell me. The problem is when they try to figure out light, sometimes it behaves like a wave and sometimes it behaves like a particle. And all the time it's whizzing past at 186,000 miles a second. That's about six times around the world. No, seven, seven or eight times around the world in a second. That's moving. So because they say sometimes it looks like a wave and sometimes it looks like a particle, they figured out another word that doesn't explain the thing. They said light is wavicles. Hasn't explained it. I mean, we know it's here. It exposes. It is the basis of sight. Without light, no sight. That'll preach, won't it? Without light, no sight. But we don't know what it is. And yet we, when we think in terms of life and we think in terms of light and we think in terms of creation and we think in terms of eternity, these are all beyond areas of speculation. We're dependent on revelation. And it's all wrapped up in the word became flesh. It goes on to say this. 
having identified and so it's spoken about his activity, the word that is, John then brings in a witness, John the Baptist. And he says that John the Baptist, who was related to Jesus of Nazareth, said that whilst he was born, that is, while John was born before Jesus, three months before him precisely, John said that whilst he was before Jesus, in actual fact, Jesus was before him. Now, that doesn't do a thing for us today. But remember that John the Baptist had developed phenomenal credibility in those days. People really listened to him. They flocked to him. And John the Baptist was your eyewitness number one, and he was your credible witness number one, and he is the one whom John, having talked about all these ephemeral, vast concepts, now brings in an earthly witness, and he said, this is the one who understands because of his intimate relationship with him, and is thoroughly credible, he is the one who understands who Jesus of Nazareth is. He is the Word made flesh. So he talks about his identity, he talks about his activity, and he talks about his humility. The Word made flesh. What this is saying is that in the revelation and the purposes of God and the reason of God behind all things, there came a time when God looked at this fallen, hurting, pain-riddled, ugly, ugly world that sin had created and decided not to zap it and not to nuke it. He decided to visit it and to come and show this sin-stained, pain-ridden world what God is really like. And he assumed our humanity, bore our griefs, accepted our sin, and bore our judgment. You know the story. It speaks of the vast humility of the word. But please, please remember this, that when we're talking Christmas, we're talking about the word in all his grandeur, made flesh. Now, we would just say the word became human or the word became a baby or something like that. John very carefully says flesh. And the reason for that was there were some people who had a thing about flesh in those days. So he's countering them, but we don't need to be worried about that for our purposes today. But we go on a bit. When we think of this revelation, the revelation of the identity and the activity and the humility of the word, we then come across this remarkable statement. It says that he was in the world and the world did not recognize him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. So now we have on the one hand revelation, which is stupendous. On the other hand, we have repudiation, which is incredible. The word comes into that which is by right his own because he made it. Can't argue with that. He comes into that which is by right his own and he comes to those who live in that which he's created as part of his creation and they are his own people and guess what? They don't recognize him. That's what he says. They don't recognize him. Now it is possible not to recognize somebody simply because you're not in tune with what is going on. And you say, it would be very easy for people not to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth was the Word incarnate because you don't expect the Word to become incarnate. Therefore, you must knock those people. Well, just a minute. If they were around at the time and they saw the miracles he did and they heard the truth that he spoke and they saw the way that he lived and they studied the Old Testament Scriptures the way they were supposed to have studied them, they would have known without a shadow of a doubt that they were seeing what God had promised 
over and over and over again that God would come and dwell with them. Isaiah had said, the virgin will conceive and bear a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel. The angel had said it to Joseph. It was common knowledge. He'd been born. He'd lived. They'd seen his testimony. They'd heard about the way he died. They'd seen the evidence of his resurrection and they still didn't recognize him. Why? Because they didn't want to. There was spiritual blindness there. My mother used to send me to look for things. I could never find them. I could never find them. And she would always say, there are none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so blind as those who will not see. I don't know why I keep quoting my mother. I never took any notice of what she said when she was alive. But it's true. It's true. That there are people who are confronted with the word made flesh and they don't recognize it. Now there are some other people who recognize him perfectly well, but they refuse to acknowledge him. There's a difference. You can fail to recognize him through spiritual blindness or you can fail to acknowledge him through spiritual hardness. We will not have this man to reign over us. There was rank repudiation of Christ. When I was in the Marines, I was one period I was in the military police and I was on guard duty at the, at, at the school where we were training uh, commandos and snipers and there's a group of snipers who had been out on exercises and they were totally covered in camouflage their faces everything their whole uniform everything was covered in camouflage and I had to wave them in and stop the traffic to get them into the entrance to the barracks and one man peeled off the back of the group and came and bawled me out for not saluting him and he was an officer. And the reason I hadn't saluted him was he was covered with camouflage. And I tried to point that out to him. He said, you should have known. Well, how in the world can you know an officer is an officer if everything is camouflaged? I recognized him, but I didn't acknowledge him. That's what he thought. In actual fact, I didn't recognize him at all. Now, here's the problem. When Jesus came into the world, there were some who just plain didn't recognize him through blindness, but there were others who refused to acknowledge what they recognized perfectly well through hardness. And there were others who couldn't care less about him. And they didn't recognize or acknowledge him or care about him through spiritual carelessness. So what's new? So what's new in the world today? Simple fact of the matter is this, that the Christ has come into the world to show us what God is like. Because of spiritual blindness on the part of some and spiritual hardness on the part of other and spiritual carelessness on the rest. He comes unto his own, and his own do not receive him. And the Christ is flatly repudiated. Revelation, repudiation. But let me close on a positive note. You say, oh great, I love it when he says, let me close. Let me close on a positive note, because it goes on to say this. But as many as received him. You see, there were those who repudiated, but there were those who received. And the three key words are revelation, repudiation, and reception reception. Those who received him, what happened to them? They were given blessing upon blessing. That's what John says here. They received blessing upon blessing. Now what are the blessings that can come when a human being receives rather than repudiates Christ, the word, who is the revelation of God? Well, the first blessing is this. He gives you the opportunity to have your eyes opened to the glory of God. This is what John says. We gazed upon him. 
We watched him intently and we saw his glory. The glory is of the one and only. I like that expression. The glory of the one and only. Let me tell you about the one and only. The word become flesh who walks around this planet of ours with a little bunch of disciples and they gaze on him and they watch him and they sojourn with him and they spend their days with him and they observe all that's going on and they see his glory. They see the sheer wonder of God manifest in language they can understand, exegeted, interpreted into things that they can grasp, veiled so they're not burned up with the revelation. The same is true of men and women who receive Christ today. They receive the sheer blessing of discovering the sheer wonder and glory of God. You know, I wonder if you've ever gone into a worship situation sometime and you've looked at some people's faces and you say, what in the world's going on with them? They seem to be in another world for me. You know, I'm just here. I don't even like the music. And these people, they just seem to be out of it. They're sort of transported. You know what's happening? They're sensing something of what God has shown them about himself in this, his son. They're being lifted above themselves. They're not wrapped up in all their mundane, earthly, perfectly legitimate concerns. They're being transported into the presence of God and he's become new and fresh and vital to them. Blessing upon blessing. Not only that, they receive the blessing of knowing God. Getting into an intimacy of relationship with God where he becomes real and they begin to understand his righteousness and his judgment and his holiness and his grace and his mercy. They begin to have some insight into these things. Jeremiah had a great word for us. He said, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. If any man would glory, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands God. If it's might you've got, don't brag on that. If it's wisdom you've got, don't brag on that. If it's riches you've got, don't brag on that. <laughs> By the way, what sort of things make us put people on pedestals? People who've got power, might. People who've got education, wisdom. People who got money, riches, they're the elites. They're the elites. And we look up to those people. Ah, oh, there's power there. Ah, oh, there's money there. Ah, oh, there's education there. Well, they're all realities we have to deal with, but I want to tell you something. There's something infinitely more important than all the power in the world and all the money in the world and all the education in the world. It is the humblest person knowing That's it. We have received blessing upon blessing. We've seen something of his glory. We've come to the point of knowing God. And he said, of his grace we have received. Grace after grace. Blessing after blessing. We've tasted his grace. That's another blessing. Tasted his grace. What does that mean? Well, grace means unmerited favor, first of all. Getting what you don't deserve. But it means more than that. It means getting from God what you don't deserve to enable you to be what you've never been and to energize you to do what you've never done. Think of that. To have a constant flow of grace from a gracious God that you don't deserve, 
that will enable you to be what you've never been and energize you to do what you've never done. Blessing upon blessing. Not only that, he said he came full of grace and truth and we tasted his grace and we grasped his truth. What a joy it would be to live with some degree of certainty in this uncertain world. To really honestly, genuinely believe that there are some things that are true and some things that are right and some things that are wrong and some things that are good and some things that are evil and to know the difference. Used to be that that was what education was about, you know. Those days are gone. But the point of it is simply this, that it is possible to know in Christ the truth. You say, truth about what? Truth about God. Truth about humanity. Truth about life. Truth about death. Truth about heaven. Truth about hell. Truth about righteousness. Truth about judgment. Truth about all the big issues of life. It is possible to know the truth. Now listen. If you receive Christ, instead of repudiating him through spiritual blindness or spiritual hardness or spiritual carelessness, if you receive Christ... You open yourself up to blessings upon blessings. The blessings of sensing the glory of God and being lifted above the mundane. The blessing of knowing God that is far more significant than all the education and all the money and all the power in the world. You know why, don't you? Because you leave them. I remember my dad reading the paper one day when I was a kid. And in the paper in England, they used to publish all the details of somebody's will after the, the will had been proved in probate court. And uh, my father called through to my mother, who's in the kitchen. Mary, Mrs. Smith's will's in the paper. My mother called back and said, how much did she leave? Never forget my dad's answer. Everything. How much did she leave? Everything. All the money, all the power, all the education in the world, you'll leave it. And that's why knowing God is the most important thing. Blessing upon blessing. You say, well, you didn't explain to us how we receive Christ. I'm glad you brought that up. This is what he says. To as many as received him, who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children of God who receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But you don't receive him on the basis of natural birth. And you don't receive him on the basis of human effort. And it doesn't pass in the bloodstream. No, you receive Christ when God does something in your life that is akin to being born of God. It's something that God does that enables you to respond. Do you know what God does? He shows you the wonder of the Word made flesh. He shows you the wonder of Christ's Savior and Lord. He opens your eyes to your own sinfulness in His own Saviorhood. And He creates within you a desire to be forgiven and a desire to live in newness of life. It doesn't come from you, it comes from Him. And as he opens your eyes and he touches your heart and he fills your mind with the truth, you have a great desire to commit yourself to this incredibly wonderful, glorious Christ in order that you might experience blessing upon blessing and you believe into him. You open your life and receive him. 
How do you believe into him? First of all, you believe that what the Bible says about him is true. You believe that it is true. And secondly, you trust yourself to that of which you are convinced, like getting on an airplane. You look at the airplane and you believe that it flies. doesn't help you a bit. Then because you believe that it flies, you commit yourself to it and you begin to live in the good of aerodynamics. To believe into Christ, to receive him, means that you believe that he is the word made flesh who reveals the truth of God to you. That you recognize your need of him, you believe that it is true, and you commit yourself utterly to him without reserve that he might save you and be the Lord of your life while you live and the Lord of you when you die. And you anticipate him pouring into your life blessing upon blessing as you live in newness of life. Let me ask you a question. This Christmas time, are you going to be able to get beyond the superficial? Are you going to be able to delve beneath the trivial? Are you going to allow yourself to move into the profound, the word in the beginning had already been in a state of continuous existence, in the intimate fellowship with the Father because he himself was God, the creator of all things, the source of life, the basis of light. He assumed our humanity, humbled himself to live our life, die our death, bear our sin in order that we might know God in all his saving grace and we might enter into an experience of grace upon grace and blessing upon blessing. What will it be? Repudiation or reception? That's the challenge of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, in order that we might face the challenge of whether we will yield to his lordship or whether we'll continue to go our own way. Pray with me about these things. Lord, we've been, we've been trying to hear your word, but we recognize that when we talk about creation, we talk about the beginning, we talk about life, and we talk about light, we're talking about things we don't understand. Speculation won't do it. Revelation alone will help. And when we think of the fact that you, Jesus, are the reason behind all things and the expression of the Father's love and grace towards us. And when we think of the ways in which through spiritual blindness or spiritual hardness or spiritual carelessness, we can join the people who didn't receive you years ago. This moves us deeply and we recognize that what we need to do is to bow the knee and bend our stubborn will and open our hard hearts to the saving grace of Jesus who died and rose again for us. We don't understand it all, but we can begin to experience it all as humbly. We simply say, Jesus, be born in my life. It's more like a stable than I want to admit, but be born in my life and transform it as you pour into it blessing upon blessing. For I pray in the name of Christ.